Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab that and then make your way to Ephesians chapter 4, as we're going to go through the second half and begin checking through the second part of Ephesians this morning. If you're new here, uh, my name is Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Well, and so it's such an honor uh, just to get to meet some of you this morning and welcome you into our gathering. And so I hope you find yourself at home and that you can worship with us this morning through the Word and through singing and through fellowship. I do want to say this morning, it's good to see everyone. Uh, just what, uh, what kind of happens in the life of our church about this time of the year, uh, we kind of like tone things down just a little bit. Um, because about this time of the year, um, we start seeing about half of our church start going back home because half of our church is comprised of college students. And so we're very, very thankful to have them as a part of our church family. But once we get to the week of finals, many people start uh, going home and heading to different parts of the country and around the state. And so in this place, uh, it's not that half our members just left. It's just and gone forever. They're just gone for just a few weeks. And then January comes and everything is back fully going. And so what I like to encourage folks uh, during the month of December and really just heading into that is just to lean into this time together. One of the best parts of this time is that we, with the folks that we have here during the month of December, is that we get to have some just really good quality time. And so if you're new here, uh, I want to just encourage you to, to maybe step out of your comfort zone and try to meet someone that's here. And if you are a church member, just to leverage this time and take lots of lunches with folks and lots of coffee breaks and lots of invitations to the home, because this is a time that we can do that and open up our doors for everyone that is here and get to meet some new folks um, during the season. So I just want to encourage you just to lean in. That is a really sweet time, even like when we get to sing songs like that together. Uh, that is my favorite song in the world, and, uh, and we just get to worship God in an intimate way as a church family, and so there's nothing better than that. And so it's a great time. It's a little bit different, and so we just lean into it as we head into December. So this morning, we are going to walk through and begin journeying through the second part of the book of Ephesians. We're at the halfway point in this very deep letter, and honestly, every time I start uh, beginning to prepare a sermon and get ready to go through this, I start out with a wider range of verses, and I, for the you know just for time's sake, but I end up going slower and longer through a few verses because all of it is just so good and so it's so helpful. What I want to talk to you about this morning is when it comes to the Christian life, uh, what you say and and what you do is important, but the way in which you do it is just as important. What you say and what you do is important, but listen, the manner in which you do these things, the way in which you live out your obedience to Christ is just as important. So God has given you and I as a church a wonderful calling in following Him and doing His kingdom work and the building up of the church. And for church folks, I don't want us to be content with this checking the box and going through the motions of just what a believer, a church member does, but in true authenticity to do it in the way in which the Lord wants us to do. Because the manner in which we do things matter, they affect one another. And see, we've learned that in the day-to-day, -day, right? Uh, just, just consider with me for a moment just how we talk and communicate with one another. Let's just, you know, pretend for a moment that there is a small, minor conflict in my household at the McCreary household, 
And let's just say it's because I didn't take out the trash on trash day when the garbage man comes, which never happens, right? But I go in and I see Lexi on Thursday afternoon after the trash man has run and she looks upset because the trash is overflowing and it's stinking and the flies are starting to like begin a colony on the trash can. And I look at her and she just looks upset. And I ask her, hey, are, are, are we okay? Are we all right? And she looks at me and then she says, I'm fine. Now, I'm not a prophet, but I have watched enough Hallmark movies to know what's going on here. She ain't fine, right? She ain't fine. She is not okay. The trash is overflowing. It is my fault, and she is upset. And so when I think about that statement, what she said factually, if you read it on a piece of paper, it would say, Lexi is fine. However, I heard the way in which she said it. This is all hypothetical. She is so sweet. But the way in which she said it in this illustration, it had a completely different meaning. It had a completely different effect on me. Like, it actually means, when she says I'm fine, it means you're going to die next week if you don't take the trash out. The manner affects the meaning of things. Right? See, I say this idea because I want you to understand the difference between an action and then the way we communicate and do an action. You see, Christ not only has a command for the church to go and do things for him, but when it comes to the church, there is a manner in which the members of the church are to carry it out for the building of the church and the love that exists within a fellowship, not just to get it done, but consider the way in which we do these things. And see, our church, we're our family we cannot settle for just doing the status quo. But we must be a people who have not only been redeemed by Jesus Christ, but watch this, but creates a culture of redemption and love and care that shows that we truly have experienced life change. See, one of the dangers that exists in the church today is in church life, is to have a group of believers claim that they have been radically changed by Jesus. But if you look and saw the interactions between members, you could not tell that there's a difference between them and then the rest of the world. I don't want us to settle for that. But let's strive to be a people who are deeply committed to both the mission and manner within the church. And so Paul lays out five marks, five marks of the manner in which you and I are to live in the church and with each other in harmony. And so I want you to look at chapter four, starting in verse one. We're going to read these first six verses, and we're going to see how Paul addresses the way in which they live. So look at me, or look at the word with me in verse one of chapter four. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together and then we will unpack these six verses. Father, you've given us such a high calling to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel calling that you have placed on our lives. God, we come to you as a church that doesn't want to just settle for the status quo, to be complacent. But God, we sense this urgent calling from Paul, and I pray that our church would aspire to these marks of this manner in which you call us to. So God, I pray that your word would convict us, that your spirit would move in us, that you would transform us in this moment as we reflect and see your true and powerful word this morning. So God, we commit our lives in this time to you, and we ask that you would work in our church now as we see this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. In the book of Ephesians, there are really just two major sections uh, in the six chapters that we have. And so we have gone over the halfway point. Chapters one through three uh, are what we have, and it's densely packed with what we call theology. And this is just an understanding and study of who God is and what he is like. And then chapters four through six are an application of that theology, or what some of us would call ethics. The way we respond to God and respond to one another, these are the ethics in the church and in the world. And so basically, the shift goes from this deep understanding of who God is to what you and I are to do in the practical day-to-day life as a Jesus follower. The steps we are to take in light of who God is in the church. And so let's get to work on this passage where he begins to unpack this. In verse 1, he mentions again that he's a prisoner for the Lord, and he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we remember Paul is a prisoner as he's writing the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. He's been accused of false charges, and he's been placed under house arrest, and he is in chains writing out these letters to the churches, trying to encourage them and exhort them to follow in obedience to Christ. And he says, Ephesus, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so I want you to catch the main idea here. For your notes, this is the main idea that Paul is communicating. is that the manner in which we follow Christ matters. The manner in which we follow Christ matters. He leads them out, and he's going to give them these marks. The manner in which we follow Christ matters. He says to do this, this walk, this meaning of a life of following Jesus, do it in a way that is worthy of the calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of God. We have this calling. We're going to live it in a way that is honoring to him. And he urges them to do this. It's not something that he tasks them to take lightly, but to take seriously. So it begs the question, well, how do you do that? How do you live a manner worthy of the calling, following in a way that it matters? What does it look like? How do we do it? What should members of the well and the church at large look like in the day-to-day life of following Jesus? I want us to look at these five marks that he gives us in one package one. The first mark that he lays out for the church is humility. The church members are to be humble, to express humility in their lives. He says in verse 2, that first mark, he says, you'll do this with all humility. 
See, as a member of the church, you are to be humble. Well, what, what is that? When we think about humility, humility is the opposite of pride. Someone who is boasting in themselves or someone who trusts in their own strength or someone whose arrogance is the driving force behind all that they do. See, humility, humble believers, these are people who are not boastful in themselves, but they're boastful in Jesus. Someone who doesn't trust in their own strength, but trust in the Lord's strength. Someone who doesn't live for their own renown, but for the glory of the Lord. That is what humility is. Someone who's wanting to do whatever God asks them to do, then point the glory back to the Father. See, you and I have to beware the temptation to do great things for God so that deep down that you and I would be great. Believe it or not, ministry and the church are one of the easiest places for folks who battle pride to hide. Because people will do amazing things for Jesus, things of a nobility, things of magnificence, yet they are done in such a manner that inwardly, individually, it is in a manner that puffs them up to where in their hearts they are first. See, for this reason, a helpful question to ask in your life is this, if you were to receive no credit, no acclaim for what you are doing in the name of Jesus, would you be okay with that? If God asked you to do great things for him, but no one's going to know that you are the one to do it, are you content and okay with that? Are you okay with going in the front door to do obedience, to live in obedience for God, and then walk out the back door when it's over pointing people to Jesus? This is the humility expressed in the church. C.S. Lewis gives a helpful analysis of humility. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's helpful in understanding this. That the idea is that you're not downcasting yourself, saying, woe is me, shame on me, and taking the intrinsic value of who you are away. It's not that, but it's simply thinking of yourself less. It's not where you're, it's where you're not number one, but you're number two. It's others before you. It is we before me. And in doing so, you display a radical humility in the church. A word of warning to the proud that God gives in the book of James. James right there, for it says in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, pride is a dangerous game to play. Because God actively opposes that. But you see immense grace displayed to the humble. Humble yourself today if that needs to be you. Mark number one is humility. Mark number two, as he keeps going, is gentleness. So number one is humility. Number two is gentleness. He says again in verse two, with all humility and gentleness. We are to be gentle with one another. One of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the trends that I see happening between genuine Christianity and the world that divides is that there is a growing intensity between folks that disagree with us or are against the church, against Christ. And for this reason, oftentimes Christians are championed for their abrasiveness, their aggressiveness, whatever it is. Now, by no means are, are, are Christians banned from being passionate and 
strong on different topics and issues. But generally, Christians are to be gentle in the manner in which Christ was. Gentle in the manner in which they approach the church and the relationships within it. See, church members, believers, followers of Jesus, they should be, we should be some of the most calm, even-tempered, steady people as we strive to be gentle. Consider the life of Jesus as we model Him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, famous passage, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Watch this. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the ultimate example of gentleness. That was his disposition. That was the core of his heart. He was a gentle Savior. And for this reason, you and I should be gentle as well with one another, within the church, with the world today. Let's be gentle. So number one, we see humility. Mark number two, we see um, gentleness. And then number three, the third mark that we see Paul list out is patience. In verse two, He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. It's one of the more, let's be honest, this is one of the more challenging ones for you and I today is we are to be patient as individual believers and as a church. This is truly one of the challenges because this is the opposite of everything that we experience in the world today, right? We are able to receive everything and not just that, we're able to receive everything very quickly. And when we don't, Sometimes we show our character in that. That's why we rage when fast food is slow food or when uh, we get stuck in traffic in Huntsville. If you get on 565 and you get stuck there for like three hours because it's infringing on our time, our plan, our calendar, whatever we want. But see, in Christ, he teaches us to be patient to wait and refrain from jumping the gun on things, but allow Christ to steady us over a lifetime of faithfulness. Let me ask you this. What if God wanted us to do great things for Him in this church? Great things for His kingdom, but it would take a long time. Many years, or possibly many decades, would we still commit to it? If God asks us to commit over a season of faithfulness, years of faithfulness, decades of faithfulness, would we still commit to it? Or is that too long for us? If God told you to wait in a relationship, in a major decision, in a move, in anything, do you respond begrudgingly or do you respond thankfully? See, to be patient is a surrendering of yourself to God. And the hours that you are given in the day. To say, Lord, I will be content whether things go my way or not. And I will demonstrate patience in whatever it may be. And whatever happens, we don't cry about it, but we willfully accept a life that requires patience. To not be in a hurry. Let me tell you something. I know patience sounds difficult, but it is actually one of the most freeing things in the life of a Christian. Because it is demonstrating this sacrifice to say, God, it's whatever you want. 
and I don't have to be in a hurry. You realize Jesus was never in a hurry? Well, I think about that. The Son of God, who arguably had more ministry tasks than we could ever imagine, he was never in a hurry. He was patient. And he was doing this because he was fully giving himself to what God had asked. We need to be patient as a church family. Patient with one another. Patient with the decisions. Patient with God's taking us. Patient in our lives, whatever that may be. Let's demonstrate patience. And then repent where we're always in a hurry. Mark number four, he says in the second verse, we have all humility, humility, gentleness, with patience. And then Mark number four, we see his forbearance, where he says, we are bearing with one another in love. We're bearing with one another in love. And so the idea here is that you and I, as a church family, when we come together and we go through a season of ministry, a season of life together, we bear with one another in love. We care for one another. We pray for one another. And we bear with one another in such a way that it demonstrates this radical agape love between all the folks in this room. We do this. See, this bearing with love is one of the defining characteristics of the church from the rest of the world, is that when you come into a fellowship, what I hope and pray to see is that you look around and it is saturated in the room, in the gathering, with folks that truly love one another. And they love one another through both good times and bad times. Like last Sunday night when we had Wells Giving and we crammed everyone into the fellowship hall, that was awesome. It was so much fun getting just to be together and share that time together to demonstrate all the love that we share over lots of turkey. And that was a great time. It's easy for us to bear with one another in love in those moments. It's not as easy when times are tough, when times are difficult. And see, it's both in moments like wellsgiving, but also in moments of loss, heartache, hardship, and trial that we lock arms together and we continue to live life together. That's bearing with one another in love. And so for the folks in the room today, do you truly love the people here? Do you truly care about the people in this place, the members of this church? Do you truly love them? And if not, why? And if so, how can you further that? to continue demonstrating this and opening up your life for one more person. Mark number four is forbearance. And then finally, Mark number five is solidarity. So number one, we have humility. Number two, we have gentleness. Number three, we have patience. Number four, we have forbearance. And then number five, we have solidarity. In verse three, he says that the church should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He is saying that we should strive to be unified. And so this is a wonderful final mark here. I want you to notice something. That he is saying that they are not just to be approving of unity, striving for solidarity, or tolerating of solidarity, but they are to be eager for it to be eager for it. It is one thing to tolerate one another in this place. 
and pursue unity, but it is another thing to be hungry for it, to be eager for unity, to be eager for solidarity. And there is a difference in that. One of the things that me and Lex go through is my wife knows when I'm tolerating of something and then when I actually want something. And I know the same thing for her. Uh, we do that often when we're choosing meals, uh, specifically over dinner time. You know, whether it be whether it's a meal or a gift, we can tell when we're tolerating and then when we actually are desiring something. So when we go through food, what we do is in our home, we think like in concentric circles around our home. We're like, what's the closest? And we're going to work further and further out of what we're going to get for dinner. And so we'll start listing off all these different places. And so sometimes Lexi will list them off or dinner time or whatever it may be. And she'll say, what do you think about this? And then I'll probably say something like, oh, like, that'd be okay. That'd be all right. And I'm saying it passively, aggressively, of course, because I don't want that. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be all right with that. And then she'll eventually say something like, well, how about five guys? And I'll say, yes, thank you. I want that, right? See, in the church, Folks will often say, yeah, like, I'll be okay with that person. I'll be okay with that member. But Paul is saying, no, I want to be in unity with that person. I'm eager for it, for solidarity. Agreeing to be in the same room is just the status quo. We should actually desire, be eager, be hungry for unity amongst one another. And we can tell when we're tolerating someone and we can tell when we're actually pursuing it. See, when someone is missing from the church after a season, do you say, ah, it's okay that they're gone? Or do you say, no, we have to go after them? We want them here. If there's a disagreement, a dissension between you and someone else in this place, do you say, I'll just I'll stay away from them and I'll just find another small group and that way we don't have to cross paths and we'll just stay out of each other's way. The room is big enough. Like, we're good. Or will you say, no, we will pursue this relationship. We will pursue this solidarity until we're unified again. See, Adolescence in unity settles for just tolerating one another, but maturity in unity shows an eagerness to pursue one another. See the difference? We must be eager for this. Pray for this and let your actions prove this over a lifetime of faithfulness, that we will not just be okay with just people just being I. But let's pursue solidarity. Let's go after all in this church family. We are all healthy and mature together. Finally, in the latter three verses, he finishes talking about the solidarity, this unity. And he talks about why we pursue it. So in verse four through six, just real quickly, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. See, everything points to the oneness that we see demonstrated in all of creation and in the kingdom of God. There is one body, meaning that in the entire world, there is one church. When we think about the Catholic church, the true Catholic church, we see that we come together as one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
not just the well church, but all churches across Huntsville and the U.S. and to the ends of the earth. We come together as one church. There is one spirit, the spirit of God who is living inside of us, indwelling us, sealing us, and strengthening us to live in this kingdom. There is one hope. It is this one hope that we find in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who conquered death, hell, and the grave and gives us eternal hope by trusting in Him. There is one Lord. He is the one true God that we live in submission to. There is one faith. It is by faith alone that you are saved by nothing else. Where we see that we are saved by faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast. There is one baptism. You are baptized into the great body of Christ. The marvelous picture and image of the gospel message of taking dead believers and raising them to life through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we do this by publicly professing our faith in Jesus Christ to the world and to the church. There's one baptism and he says, finally, there's one God and Father. He is over all and through all and in all. Meaning we live under the sovereignty of God. We live in the sustaining work of Him being through all. And we live in assurance knowing that He is in us and we are in Him. Because of the salvation He freely offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is all one. There's solidarity in that. See, our response to the marks of this calling or a response to the manner of who God is. So as we come to a close today, I want to ask you these questions. What marks of this calling to be worthy of following God do you need to pursue today? Are you humble? Are you gentle? Are you patient? Are you forbearing? Are you eager? Are you truly hungry for unity? Hungry for the solidarity? See, check this out. As we pursue solidarity, unity amongst one another, we do this because God has pursued that with us. Truly. He has pursued us through His Son. See, sin separates us, but the Son of God saves us. Now we are in Him and He is in us. Jesus has given His life for you and now you have the opportunity, if you never have, to give your life to Him. To give your life to Him if you have not done so today. Listen, folks, Jesus is the friend of sinners who calls us to follow Him. And if you trust in Jesus today, He will make you new. He'll make you a new creation as you bear now the righteousness of God and you are adopted into His family forever. The invitation to His family is wide open. And if you have never trusted in Jesus today, call to Him and He will save your soul as you trust in Him by faith alone. And for us as a church family today, here's our opportunity to grow in maturity. And I pray that you and I will take that as we consider these marks of the manner in which Christ has called us to. It matters. And so let's pursue that today.